The History Files. We bring history to you. Well, not knowing when our audience is listening to this podcast, uh, today's date is actually the 117th anniversary of the sinking of the main which triggered or was the catalyst for the Spanish-American War. History lives again. For doing some research or reading background and some contemporary works that involve this time period and these issues, Gordon, what are some of the media uh, resources that folks could view, read, etc., as an introduction or to flesh out what what we're going to be talking about. Well, first off, one of the one of the most fun uh, resources is the Rough Riders by Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, this is the one that's also, as I mentioned in, later on in the podcast, uh, alone in Cuba because it mostly talks about Theodore Roosevelt. But it's still chock full of a lot of good information. And he was there. There's also a movie based on it called The Rough Riders that, w- that came out, I believe it was in 97, uh, starring Tom Berenger and uh, Sam Elliott. Uh, I'm actually in it too, mostly shooting artillery pieces and uh, charging up San Juan Hill. Do you die? Uh, no, I survived that. Good thing. Yeah. Otherwise, we wouldn't have a podcast. Now, my lovely wife, Neb, uh, she did die in it. She was uh, a, a Cuban girl that was accidentally shot by somebody or another. I also recommend The Roosevelt's by Ken Burns. It's a very good miniseries. The parts about Theodore are, well, it's all very well done. The parts about Theodore are very pertinent. He was an amazing flawed, very flawed individual who a lot of people love him a lot of people hate him as it was said at the time he was uh, belligerent and enthusiastic (laughs) hard to get around that I also recommend to anybody who's really interested in the actual physics of the sinking of the Maine to check out Admiral Hyman Rickover's report on the sinking of the Maine which is available on the internet uh, he did a very thorough report, as a nuclear engineer is probably wont to do. And uh, if you really want the details, all the gory details, Rickover is your man. And it's Rickover, spelled just as it sounds. Yep, R-I-C-K-O-V-E-R. Excellent. Thanks. We learned that we can no longer afford the mistakes of the past. We thought that today we talk a little bit about the origins of the Spanish-American War, sinking of the Maine, the Cuban campaign, the conquest of the Philippines, and some of the people involved in the expansion of the U.S. from a continental republic into a world empire. First, Gordon, I understand that you have some new information concerning the reasons for the USS Maine being sent to Cuba in the first place, an act which had enormous repercussions 
Tell us a little bit about this new information that you've received. A relative of mine, a fellow by the name of Dennis Holmes, has recently, he's doing a lot of family research on my mother's side of the family, the tenors, and came across some interesting information about a fellow who'd married into the family named John Randolph Caldwell. He's a reporter for AP News Service, and he was assigned to Cuba. He had an office in Havana, and he was on very friendly speaking terms with the American ambassador, the consul, uh, who was uh, general, former general of the Confederate Army, Fitzhugh Lee, happened to be uh, Robert E. Lee's son. At any rate, he felt that things were deteriorating in the area enough that he felt that he should be armed, and he, in fact, had a pistol with him, a revolver, that he either lost or was stolen or something. He wired to his boss in New York that he needed a replacement revolver, uh, but he used a code. He and the the fellow that he was, the specific individual that he wired to his reports to, had a cipher code so that he could get information out of Cuba that would otherwise be censored. So anyway, he sent in cipher that a need for a revolver which they sent him. Now, I have no idea how they got it through customs and stuff, but anyway, it got sent, but with no ammunition. So, I guess ammunition would be hard to come by in a in Cuba under any circumstances. So, he wired back in clear. Camera sent, was, re- was received, but no film. Well, unfortunately, the fellow that he had worked out his cipher with was gone for the day. A new fellow was in there, assumed that this was in cipher, and somehow came up with the idea that he had that the wire meant that the consul in Cuba, Fitzhugh Lee, had been assaulted. And so no ammunition was forthcoming, but... The, the head of AP immediately called the State Department and told them that, oh my God, the, the ambassador has been assaulted in the streets of Havana. So, <laughs> the result of that was that the United States, get, you know, the government got all in a huff and we sent the battleship Maine to Havana to help calm the situation or intimidate the Spaniards, or whatever. Some of the background to this was that Spain, of course, had conquered most of the Americas in the 16th century, but by 18, the 1890s, Cuba was the, the last of the Spanish possessions in the New World, and it was in the throes of revolution. It was a big revolution, but they were doing some uh, unseemly things, like they're, they, the Spaniards pretty much invented the, um, the concentration camp using barbed wire and things like that. Now, the British actually improved upon the model in the Boer War the next year, but the Spaniards developed it. And the Americans, you know, were sending reporters to come up with all kinds of dirt on the Spaniards because it was good press. It sold a lot of papers. Unfortunately, in this case... Not only did it sell a lot of papers, uh, this miscommunication between 
John Caldwell and his his people at the Associated Press led to bigger things, as it were, with the sending of the main about right about New Year's of uh, uh, no, actually, I guess it was in in January of eighteen ninety eight. So once the main was sent to Havana, at some point it blows up. Right. Does anybody really know what happened? There were a lot of theories floating around at the time, needless to say. One of the most outrageous ones was the one promulgated by then Undersecretary of the Navy, Theodore Roosevelt. He claimed that it was obvious that Spaniards had planted a mine, in other words, an explosive, a large explosive, on the seabed underneath the main and blew it up. Well, Spanish authorities, the Spanish Navy, did a thorough investigation based on the wreckage of the main immediately thereafter and came to the conclusion that it was an explosion based on a coal fire in one of the coal bunkers. All the steamships of that day were fired by coal. And it was not an uncommon scenario for a small fire to to be smoldering away in some of these coal bunkers. Now when you add seawater, so if you had a, some minor leaks, mixing with coal you get some um, uh, eh, why can't I think of the name? Um, hydrogen. You get hydrogen released and when you have hydrogen released by the mixture of seawater and coal mixed with a coal fire kaboom! So the Spaniards, and they published this, they published this finding that it was a, uh, due to a, a fire in a coal bunker. In the 1970s, Admiral Hyman Rickover, who was the, the father of the nuclear navy, got interested in this, and he put together another study. They went and they looked not only at all of the records that the Spanish navy had put together, but the American navy had, as well as they knew where the wreck was. So they went down and took pictures and looked at the wreck. And Hyman Rickover concluded that it was a fire in the coal bunker that blew it up. That wasn't good enough for the United States, though. You can't have accidents actually happen. They have to have some other... There has to be a reason. Uh, It's like a deodand in Anglo-Saxon law. The wagon doesn't just roll over somebody accidentally. The wagon must be at fault or you have to find fault somewhere. Point. It's like witch doctors in Africa. You have to point at somebody doing things. And that seems to be the way the American public tends to operate. Somebody is at fault. And the obvious conclusion was the Spaniards. We don't like them anyway. They must be at fault. They must, they must have done it. They had to do it. What was the, the result of the sinking of the Maine? Well, the Maine was sunk on... It was February 15th of 1898, and the almost immediate result was shock and then a demand for war on the part of the United States against Spain. The, uh, there'd been quite a bit of uh, provocation from the American newspapers at the time, painting the Spaniards as, as dark, evil 
satanic almost characters uh, who were abusing the uh, otherwise happy, joyful people of Cuba. And so, well, obviously they were bad. Obviously they were at fault. We need to go to war with them and liberate Cuba. And so when you had people like Theodore Roosevelt who were merrily stoking the fires of this, along with William Randolph Hearst and Joseph Pulitzer, uh, it was almost a foregone conclusion. What was the what was the role of the press, often called yellow journalism at the time? What is yellow journalism? How did that play into um, the, the the lead up and and getting into or the the Span M war? Well, the term comes from the fact that the cheap newspapers of the day were made on really cheap paper, very highly acidic, and they yellowed very quickly. So that thus it was yellow journalism was shorthand for cheap. And people like Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst got themselves heavily involved in these small papers that had daily circulations. And they were in a war. They were in a, a, a circulation war with one another. What it boils down to is it's all about selling soap. The ads in the newspapers were to sell products like soap the more circulation you had the more you could charge for the advertising therefore they wanted as high a circulation as humanly possible so they could go to their advertisers and say this is what our daily circulation is this is what it's going to cost you to buy advertising see how many people it goes to so the more sensational the stories the bigger the circulation William Randolph Hearst, in fact, had sent a budding young artist, an illustrator, Frederick Remington, who incidentally had also illustrated Theodore Roosevelt's uh, hunting books. He sent him to Cuba to make illustrations, to draw pictures of all of the, the, the atrocities the Spaniards were doing to the Cubans. And when Remington got there, he looked around and discovered there wasn't anything happening. There may be some minor little bushfire wars going on way off in the middle of nowhere, but he couldn't find them. And so he wired back to William Randolph Hearst. He said, there's nothing going on here, you know, nothing to report. And Hearst's famous reply was, you send me pictures, I'll give you a war. So there was a, a, a multiple connection here. Papers want to sell advertising, and then that lends itself to spinning up the readership into a particular mindset that lends itself to the politicians working towards their own agendas. Is that a fair statement? I think you summed it up quite nicely. Any O'Brien Williams as an <laughs> example? Brian Williams is actually a really good modern day example because he's being, you know, crucified for telling stories about an actual incident of a helicopter being, you know, taken taking fire and having to be grounded. Um 
that he heard about closely, he may have even witnessed, but he took a nugget of fact and then he built around it his you know putting himself into that situation and then completely blew it out of proportion. So while it began with truth by his expansion of it, it turned it into a lie because he had nothing to do with it. Yes, the incident happened. The incident may have happened the way he said, but he wasn't involved there. He wasn't in it. And that, I think, is a example of yellow journalism in which you take something that is very small and then blow it way out of proportion. So yellow journalism, something we might want to use as a lens of analysis or filter even today. Oh, absolutely. Uh you know, whether it's the press taking, let's just say, oh, I don't know, bits of information and, and press releases about weapons of mass destruction and not actually bothering to dig into it to find out if there's any reality about it or behind it, or like Brian Williams taking this nugget of information and then expanding on it, they're they're equally Poor journalism. Okay. So, going back to Cuba, we declared war on Spain to liberate Cuba. Why did we sink the Spanish fleet in Manila, half the world away? Well, that's where we get into American empire and expansion. Because we had a fleet in the Far East uh, under the command of Admiral uh, George Dewey. It happened to be stationed in Hong Kong. We were building a very, starting to build a very close rela- working relationship with Great Britain. Throughout the 19th century, we didn't like the British. And the special relationship that the United States now has with Britain is fairly modern, really. Uh, it took Americans a long time to warm up to them because for years and years and years it was, you know, King George and, you know, taxation and all this kind of thing. And, you know, it was hyperbole, that was, but it was used for various nationalist reasons and national mythology. And so it took a little while to actually become friendly with the British on a national scale. Politically, internationally, we'd been friends with the British for a long time. Uh, So we happily were able to station our Pacific fleet in Hong Kong, which of course then was a British possession. Uh, And in fact, when war was declared and Theodore Roosevelt cabled uh, to Admiral Dewey to coal up and, and top off your... Uh, ammunition supplies uh, the British were only able to let them coal for 24 hours because they were a neutral so they the ships that hadn't been fully coaled up moved just out into international waters and certain patriotic Hong Kong businessmen sent the rest of the coal by Collier out to international waters and completed coaling up our ships uh, to to keep a, a chronology clear, the Maine sinks 
in February of 1898. Correct. War is officially declared. Uh, in April. I believe it was April 1st. Okay. Uh, or 6th, somewhere in there. In April. Early April. And so we'll give it, we'll call it three weeks after, okay. two or three weeks later, after the Maine is sunk. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt was undersecretary of the Navy. It was a way to, he'd been in New York politics, and it was, this was a way to reward him for his work and getting uh, President McKinley elected. But also, it was hoped by New York politicians there was a way to bury him somewhere where he couldn't cause too much trouble. Was that because he was really, really good at his job? Well, he's certainly enthusiastic about it. Uh, I don't know if he's good, but you know, you apply enough enthusiasm to anything <laughs> to get it done. The actual Secretary of, of the Navy... John D. Long was a fairly elderly man and liked to take off early in the afternoon and sometimes took off Fridays and because he had this very energetic assistant, he felt that, well, he, he could get away with doing that. Unfortunately, when he said, all right, Theodore, don't get us into too much trouble uh, with a man like Roosevelt, that doesn't go very far. Uh, and so Roosevelt did all kinds of crazy things, and one of them was, first off, ordering our, Atl our Asiatic fleet to be ready to go just prior to the declaration of war, or right at the declaration of war. And then when Long was gone, again, cabling them, go to Manila. There's Spaniards there, there's a Spanish fleet there. We're at war with Spain. Who says we're only going to attack Cuba? And that was that was just Roosevelt. Nobody else ever mentioned the the Philippines in our declaration of war or the discussion of it or anything else. Roosevelt was was a dyed in the wool expansionist though, and the Philippines looked like a plum ready to be picked. So, going to the Philippines had less to do with the country of the Philippines or the islands of the Philippines. It was the fact that the Span there was a Spanish fleet there that could be sunk. Right. Well, I think what they really wanted was that happened to be a Spanish fleet there that we could sink, but we wanted the Philippines. Uh, various expansionist forces within the United States, you could call them imperialists, uh, whatever. They wanted the Philippines because it's a stepping stone to China. If you look at American history, from Columbus, from the Portuguese first expanding in the Atlantic in the 1440s, especially after the fall of Constantinople to the Turks in 1453, they cut off the Silk Road, there's been this drive by the Western Europeans to try to get to China. Somehow we got to get to China. The Portuguese figured out how to do it by way of going around Africa. The Spaniards tried to go west with Columbus. Unfortunately, there was a continent in the way. The English, following that lead, hit the continent, pushed across it. The reason we took California from 
Mexico, Spain's successor, was for San Francisco Bay so that we could have access to the Pacific Ocean so that we could get to China. That was a stepping stone. The Philippines were last stepping stone. Interestingly enough, the Philippines had been under Spain, had been administered out of Mexico City. So in a way, taking the Philippines from Spain was almost just sort of an add-on to our taking Arizona, New Mexico, and California, and Nevada from Mexico. It's just, eh, just all part of the same thing. Okay. So in regards to the Spanish fleet trying to escape from Santiago de Cuba, forgive my poor pronunciation, what happened with that? Oh, um, yeah, the Spanish fleet tried to escape from Santiago de Cuba. It was the... and, and so I, I, I jumped around there. Mm-hmm. We went from Cuba to the Philippines, and right. now we're back to Cuba. Now we're back to Cuba. Okay. Because, well, let me, let me give a little bit of background on, or more fully explain what was going on in the Philippines. The American fleet under Dewey sailed, given orders by Roosevelt, sailed from Hong Kong down to Manila Bay, sailed into Manila Bay in the middle of the night, were not noticed by the Spaniards. Not, uh, they weren't, uh, they weren't noticed. And the, uh, they went north into in Manila Bay to look up at Subic Bay, which later became an American Navy base. Didn't find the Spanish fleet there, so they sailed south again, down through Manila Bay is a big, a big bay. Uh, sailed south and found the Spanish fleet at Cavite, which is like a suburb of Manila. And at about five thousand yards, starting at like seven in the morning. The uh, American commander, George Dewey, told his flag captain, You may fire when ready, Gridley. And off we went. And it took us, I don't know, about four hours of shelling with a couple hours in between for lunch. Uh, We we sank their fleet at anchor. Um, With room for tea. With room for tea, yes. And so we sank their fleet... It never, it, they got a few shots off, but like 300 and some odd Spaniards were killed. Not an American was even wounded. And uh, there's a Spanish fleet smoldering in the shallows of Cavite. And in the evening, the band of the USS Olympia, flagship of the Asiatic Squadron, uh, gets out on the quarterdeck and plays serenades of popular music to the people of Manila who I'm sure thought, these Americans, they are crazy. And just for for local interest, the USS Olympia. The USS Olympia, named after the capital of the state of Washington. Unfortunately, the state of Washington wants nothing to do with the ship, which still exists and is pretty much rotting at the dock in Baltimore right now. Uh, But people of Washington just don't care. Okay, we're working our way into uh, the Spanish fleet escaping Santiago de Cuba. Yes. So the Spanish fleet was ordered by their admiralty 
in Spain to n not provoke the Americans. In other words, stay in harbor. Uh, luckily for them, Santiago de Cuba has a very narrow channel to get in. It's, you know, got high mountains, hills on either side. And uh, so it's pretty safe in there. The American fleet, ordered again by Roosevelt on uh, when war was declared, immediately put a uh, blockade around Cuba. And interestingly, the Americans were rather fearful of a certain part of the Spanish fleet, one you wouldn't think about. They were afraid of the, um, the Spanish torpedo boat destroyers. Now, early in the, well, shortly after the American Civil War, the, what they call a, uh, the modern torpedo, a uh, self-propelled torpedo, was developed by a guy named John Whitehead. And in the next, course of the next 30 years, they'd gotten pretty good. The original torpedo boats were fairly small little things that were halfway underwater, sort of like a submarine, but not really because they didn't really go underwater. And in order to combat them, torpedo boat destroyers were developed. Well, a torpedo boat destroyer was bigger and faster. And it's like, well, if it's faster, why are we bothering with torpedo boats? So the torpedo boat destroyer, now known as a destroyer, became the standard weapons platform for torpedoes. So the Spanish ha uh, commander of the tor their destroyers, their torpedo boat destroyers, was a gentleman by the name of Commander Fernando Villamil, who was actually a, a, a world-renowned theoretician on how to employ these destroyers. Unfortunately for the Spaniards, they were absolutely forbidden to go out and hunt down American battleships, but the Americans were pretty fearful of this. Because the one thing they could that could, well, there's two things that could sink a battleship: another battleship, or a torpedo. And the Spaniards had some very, very good torpedoes and torpedo boats, and a very aggressive torpedo boat commander. Um, so, where were we? <laughs> Back to the question: the Spanish fleet escaping from Santiago de Cuba. Right. There's actually another relative of mine involved in this end of the Spanish-American War. At what point can we blame you and your family? Um, well, if I have to give reparations, then uh, n never. If, <laughs> if I get some money out of it, then you can blame me all you want. But my mother's great-uncle, a guy by the name of uh, Daniel Mendel had joined the Navy as a young man in the mid-1890s and happened to be positioned in the crow's nest of the USS Iowa on the morning of, it was July 7th, or 3rd, pardon me, July 3rd, 1898. And there was a standing offer that the first man to spot the Spanish fleet coming out was going to get a commission he happened to be in the right place at the right time, and he spotted the Spanish fleet coming out. And uh, the orders that they'd been given, that the command, the captains of these battleships and cruisers had been given, was when you see the Spaniards charge. Well, unfortunately, we were in sort of an arc around the entrance, which meant that we were charging and shooting 
at one another almost as the as the artillery pieces shells were going over the Spaniards. The uh, it was it was shooting ducks in a barrel. Unfortunately, the Spaniards very very conscientiously slowed down as they came out of the channel to drop off the civilian pilots of their ships. And then they had they not bothered doing that, they might have made a clean getaway, but they didn't do that. They didn't want their the civilian pilots to be involved in this in what they knew was going to be a pretty bad shootout. Uh, only one Spanish fleet made it very far. It made it actually 50 miles. It was run down by the USS Oregon, which had sailed from San Francisco uh, in this dash, a mad dash around the horn uh, to get to Cuba in time to actually be involved. And that mad dash was actually one of the things that was used to uh, to publicize the need for the Panama Canal. But at any rate, it was a it, shooting fish in a barrel. And this fellow, Dan Mendel, ended up getting com- a commission, but in U.S. volunteers in the Army. And he wasn't real happy with that, so he ended up back in the Navy a few years later. Theodore Roosevelt has come up in so much of what you have been talking about, the events that went on, the decisions, the cables. What else did he do in in this war? And, and what, what, what was he after? What was he doing? Well, quite famously, he's the one that, as I mentioned before, sent the cable to Admiral Dewey, take, take the Philippines, take Manila, and destroy the Spanish fleet there. After sending the cable, he resigned his post as Undersecretary of the Navy, walked across the hall in the old executive building which in D.C., which is, of course, across the street from the White House. Uh, he walked across the hall to the War Department, and I suspect he'd had machinations in there before, got himself a commission as a lieutenant colonel, second in command of the 1st Regiment of United States Cavalry Volunteers, a.k.a. the Rough Riders. Uh, He was smart enough to know that he didn't know what he was doing, so he only wanted to be second in command, and he had his friend Leonard Wood, who was a captain in the cavalry at the time, be named Colonel of Volunteers uh, to be in command of this, the the, the Rough Riders, the 1st U.S. Volunteer Cavalry. They were sent to, first to Tampa. He recruited from all over the place. He had his cowboys from the far west, and he had his college men from the Ivy League schools, and they managed to work it out. (laughs) Their their differences, they worked it out fairly cleanly. Um, And they went to Tampa, Florida, for training. And in June, by June, they were off to Cuba. And of course he had his very famous, you know, happiest hour of his life charging up San first Kettle Hill and then San Juan Hill on July third of eighteen ninety eight. The term Rough Riders was actually used originally by Wild Bill or Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. 
is Buffalo Bill's Wild West show and Congress of Rough Riders. So it was a it was a current term for guys who could really ride. Never no mind that the Rough Riders of Theodore Roosevelt didn't get to bring their horses with them because the army had really screwed up their logistics program. They had no idea what they were doing. The last time they'd had a a campaign like this was in the Civil War 33 years before. So they'd lost all their knowledge of how to do logistics of that scale. In fact, the the uh, Rough Riders ended up having to capture a steamer transport that had been assigned to the 71st New York uh, because somebody else had taken their transport. So it it was a huge cluster. Speaking of logistics, the anecdote of the bugler and landing the horses. Yes. Although the Rough Riders didn't get to bring their horses, the uh, Buffalo Soldiers, the U.S. Colored Cavalry, uh, the 9th and 10th, they did bring some of their horses. They were uh, the Army or the Navy, anyway, whoever had scouted out the position where they were going to land at Daiquiri, had said, oh, yeah, well, there's a wharf leading out to out into the sea, so it's it, we can just land there. We'll bring our ships right up to the wharf and dock and unload everything. Unfortunately, the wharf didn't go as deep as the draft of our ships was were. So the way to get the horses from the ships to the shore was simply to push them off the ship into the water and let them swim. Well, horses, when they get disoriented, decide they're going home. Unfortunately for them, home was Florida. That's the last place they'd been on land. They were going to Florida, which mm, crossed the old Bahamas Channel. That's a ways, like 90 miles. Luckily, there was a very quick-thinking bugler, uh, Buffalo Soldier, who kicked off his boots, grabbed his bugle, and dove into the water. Off the ship, he swam over to one of the nearest horses, grabbed it by the mane, and turned its head so that he was, that, so that the horse was now swimming towards the shore. He <laughs> dumped the water out of his bugle and blew recall. And every one of those horses was so well-trained and so, so used to it, they all turned around and followed him. So the, the quick actions of this one man, this bugler and the U.S. Colored Cavalry, uh, saved every single horse that the United States Army had brought with it to Cuba. A little, a little commentary on the things you don't probably run into in textbooks. Those little things. Exactly. Those little things that make history really interesting. Uh, I don't even know if anybody knows the man's name. Huh. I've never run across his name, but he was a bugler in, I believe it was the 9th Cavalry. Uh, but it was... You know, it was <laughs> we'd have had no transport had it not been for that man. Well, we do know Theodore Roosevelt's name. Yes, yes. And we, we got into some of his actions throughout all of this. Opine on his objectives. What, what was he up to? Well, one thing was it was pure ego. Uh, his book of... Uh, about the the war with Spain, uh, a friend, a quote friend, 
referred to it as alone in Cuba because he doesn't really mention anybody else. Uh, he was a man of incredible ego and self-centeredness. But he was also part of a cabal with his friend um, uh, Henry Cabot Lodge and, and a few others of the progressive wing of the, Demo of, pardon me, the Republican Party who were very expansionist. You, you could very easily uh, compare them to the neocons of today. They had an agenda, and that agenda was an American empire. There were some some people um, who, within the corridors of power, who were absolutely against this. But, because Roosevelt had, he himself was uh, somewhat moneyed, he was in uh, league with some other very strongly moneyed individuals, um, where there's money to be made, things are going to happen. The that month of of uh, July of eighteen ninety eight was hugely influential in American history because not only did we take Cuba from Spain, uh, in fact the uh, the charge of San Juan Hill, which was actually Kettle Hill, and uh, you know that took place on July third. The uh, few weeks before, of course, we'd taken, uh, at least we'd sunk the Spanish fleet in Manila. We finally, in August, got troops there to actually complete the taking of Manila. But we annexed Hawaii on July 6th of 1898. Um, there had been a coup d'etat supported by the American ambassador against... Uh, the Hawaiian monarchy that had been uh, primarily instituted by the Dole family of Dole Pineapples and they had overthrown the, the government asked to be annexed and President Grover Cleveland who was very much a libertarian said no we don't do that that's not in the constitution that we can do that sort of thing However, the McKinley administration was a great deal more... Obviously, we were taking Cuba and the Philippines. The McKinley administration was uh, far more open to that sort of thing, so we annexed Hawaii. We also took Guam from Spain, and we also took uh, what's now American Samoa. So, right there, boom, the summer of 1898, we liberated Cuba... We took Puerto Rico from Spain. We took at least the part of Manila from Spain. We took uh, Guam from Spain. We annexed Hawaii, and we also annexed uh, American Samoa. So our stepping stones to China were complete between Hawaii, Guam, and the Philippines. And our... Monroe Doctrine uh, of having complete uh, being the hegemon of the of the Caribbean, and certainly well the hegemon of the Western Hemisphere with taking Cuba and the um, and Puerto Rico was pretty well complete. 
So that 1898 was an impre- very impressive year. So when you take all of that in context, if you were to take square mileage of dirt in the Pacific, looking at a globe, may not have been that much. But if you put it into the context of technology at the time, coaling depots, places to to leapfrog, maybe real estate we didn't get a lot of, but the connections over a vast uh, ocean and the importance of what those stop-offs meant relative to the end goal being China. Right. These islands could be thought of as either anything from either castles, strong points, whatever, when you're traveling cross-country, like, say, forts in the Wild West. You got you take your wagon to that fort, and that's a safe haven to get supplies. Hawaii and Guam became major coaling stations because coal being a fairly... Mm, it's large. You can't carry enough coal to get you very far on a big ship. It's not very, as efficient as oil is. Therefore, having coaling stations across the Pacific gave us an enormous amount of control over that ocean. And there was, there was nobody to even begin to, uh, to challenge us on that until 1941. And the Japanese never challenged us past Hawaii. And that's about halfway across. <laughs> yeah. So we have since that day had enormous control. The Pacific is an American lake. One other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, that same year of 1898 was the Alaska Gold Rush. And while Alaska had been an American um, possession since 1867 when we bought it from Russia, it was not on the American mind. But the Gold Rush definitely brought in to the American consciousness, conscience, and consciousness, the fact that we owned this huge chunk of land on the north in the North Pacific, and so with the the North Pacific and the uh, of of Alaska and the Aleutians, and then you've got the Central Pacific of Hawaii and Guam, and then starting to get into the South Pacific of Samoa, and of course you've got the Philippines. We were. You know, quickly turning the Pacific into an American lake. So you, you, I'm going to backfill here. One of the ideas was um, 1898 being a a year of uh, the United States going from a regional or continental power to a world power slash empire. Yes. a, a, A shift in that regard. And you just completed the, if you will, the shipping lanes and the the internet rest stops and gas stations as to the significance. Um, the 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 year eighteen ninety eight. What's the official start date and end date? Just to put this in context of the Spanish American War. Well, if you want to start it with the main blowing up, that was February 15th. And 
since today is February 16th, that was 117 years ago, which is why we're pretty much talking about this, uh, the Philippines didn't actually get fully under our control until 1914. Uh, oddly enough, the Filipinos were not... Uh, well, they read papers too, and they thought that we were going to liberate them just like we liberated Cuba. And when it turned out that, no, we're going to keep the Philippines, they were somewhat appalled and took up their disgust uh, in the form of, of rifles. So the Philippine insurrection, which only officially lasted until like 1904, um, against the Tagalog-speaking peoples, uh, was uh, uh, you know fairly well completed. But as far as the southern islands, which are primarily Muslim, that didn't happen until 1914 at the Battle of Bugbagsak. I love that name. That's, that is that is a good name. It's a cool name. Yeah, Bugbagsak. So. Uh, as far as control, though, we had control of Manila by certainly late 1898, say September, October of 1898. So it only took us, what's, well, certainly less than a year, eight months, to go from blowing up the main to having complete hegemony in the Pacific. That's pretty remarkable. Uh, Rudyard Kipling wrote a poem welcoming us into the fold of imperial nations with a poem that's been very much misunderstood, but it's called The White Man's Burden. And as uh, William Howard Taft, he was uh, a uh, judge who Theodore Roosevelt had sent off to be his personal emissary into the Philippines and later was handpicked by Roosevelt to become the President of the United States, his, his successor. Uh, he, he referred to the Filipinos as our little brown brothers with complete sincerity. He was a big dude. He was a big man. He was like six foot tall and 300 pounds. So just about anybody was little. Uh, but Filipinos were obviously, obviously brown, but he referred to them as our brothers because we were bringing peace and democracy to them. Uh, or a the song of the time about uh, the conquest of the Philippines said, we will civilize them with our crags. Uh, the crag Jorgensen being the American military rifle of the day. Well, Gordon, let's swap things around a little bit. Normally we talk about current events at the beginning of the podcast. Or that's our general format. Um, we just went through the Spanish-American War and um, Cuba, the Philippines, the ex the expansion uh, policies in the Pacific, turning it into a uh, largely an American lake. And you'd mentioned, as far as Hawaii went, the Dole family, and and uh, of course that conjures up the Dole pineapple uh, that we all enjoy, or many of us enjoy. Is there any Parallel parallels that we could uh, make between, say, the Dole family uh, in the 
1898 and say Shell Oil and BP of today and the Middle East? Absolutely. The one of the things that 1898 taught us was that although conquering territory is good, you don't necessarily have to own it to control it. And although throughout turning the Pacific into American Lake, yeah, that was that was outright land grab, ocean grab, whatever you will. And the Doles were very much involved in that with the annexation of Hawaii. However, the next step of, shall we say, the American Empire was learning that Again, you don't have to own the property to control it. The United Fruit Company figured out at the same basic time, uh, up through the 30s, well, on, onwards, that you can control a country's econ- uh, economic output, their resources, by simply controlling the government and not owning it. Uh, the term banana republic comes from... United Fruit Company controlling all these little banana republics in Central America by, oh, well, if they don't want to play the ball, our ball game anymore, we'll have them overthrown. And uh, a coup d'etat, new government in place, they want money, we'll give it to them, and they'll allow us to strip mine their company, their country. Uh, the the president of Ecuador fairly recently had a great statement. He said the United States will never have a uh, never have a coup d'état uh, because there's no American embassy in Washington. <laughs> the the uh, uh, but moving on, the reason that BP British Petroleum was in Iraq in the first place. The reason Iraq exists is for oil. Iraq's uh, borders were drawn on a map in a, some drawing room in either London or Fran- or Paris uh, as part of, first off, the Sykes-Picot uh, Treaty of uh, 1916 and then the Versailles Treaty, which ended World War I, of 1919. And British Petroleum, due to the fact that back to coal and coaling stations, coal's inefficient. The British, with their Queen Elizabeth-class battleships in 1915, started using oil for firing their boilers. The only oil that the British had access to was in the Middle East. Therefore, who owned it at the time? Turkey. What was Turkey? Turkey happened to be an ally of Germany. Therefore, with such characters as Lawrence of Arabia, we're going to overthrow, we're going to destroy the Turkish Empire. We're going to set up all these little rather shaky countries and we'll control them. And so British Petroleum could control Iraq. Uh, Iran or Persia was the only country in the whole area that didn't want to play ball. They didn't have to because they hadn't been part of the Turkish Empire. They're the only place in the neighborhood that wasn't. But everywhere else was. Shell, pardon me, Chevron, and the Americans took Saudi Arabia. 
and uh, with our influence there, the British got Iraq, the French got Syria. Uh, all this is part of you know British protectorates, French protectorates, etc. After uh, World War One. However, sometimes, as I mentioned with the Banana Republics, the various dictators either get greedy or they start thinking, oh, well, maybe my people should get a little bit of, of money out of all of our resources that are being drained. Gee, uh, this isn't right. A little bit more money should stay here, even if it's only to stay here in my pocket. So you get a Saddam Hussein <clears throat> or Muammar Gaddafi. Populists, whatever you want to call them, but for whatever reason, they choose to no longer go along with the oil companies or their, their patrons in London or D.C. or Paris, uh, their ideas and goals. So what do you do with them? You overthrow them. How do you overthrow them? Well, there's a lot of ways. You can either have a coup d'etat, like we did with... Uh, Iran in 1956 when the CIA overthrew their popularly elected government and returned the Shah to power. Or if you've got somebody like Saddam who is just too deeply entrenched, he and his Ba'ath party were too deeply entrenched, what do you do? Well, military invasion works. And a military invasion that you come up with some good reason for, well, gee, they quote, invaded Kuwait in quote, in 1990, or was it 92? Anyway, first Gulf War, boom. We didn't actually invade them, but we certainly knocked them down. We had uh, over 10 years of sanctions against them. And then in 2003, with the excuse that they were harboring Al-Qaeda, which is about the last thing Saddam would do, or they had weapons of mass destruction, which still have yet to be found, there's our excuse. Now, have we kept the territory? No. We handed it back to various Iraqi factions that will allow us to do what we want to do. But, you know, we, we get to do what we want. We get So to, long as we get the pineapples from the geography. The pineapples it, or the bananas or the oil or timber or whatever. As long as we get to loot the place... We don't have to own it. We just have to control it. Well, on that last note of pineapples and daiquiris, that should wrap things up for this week's History Files. Thanks for your time, Gordon. You bet. Thank you, Dylan. It's a, always a pleasure to get to pontificate. Awesome. Well, ending on dull pineapples and daiquiris, that should wrap things up for this week's podcast of the History Files. Thank you for your time, Gordon. This is Dylan Honnold and Gordon Fry. And until next week, get reading. The History Files is brought to you by Bad Cat Productions. If you enjoy our show, please visit us on the web at historypundit.webs.com slash historyfilesshow.htm, where you can find show notes, links to our blogs and YouTube channel, and information about upcoming events. Please consider supporting the History Files show by visiting our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash badcatshows, where a pledge of even $1 a month will help keep us on the air. Bad Cat. Meow.